0: Father, we are grateful this morning for your word, for the gospel, for the power of the cross, for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, for the goodness that you show us in offering us your son. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve him. We deserve hell. All of us. And yet, by your grace and your mercy, you give us something better. And so, this morning as we examine the suffering of Christ, that is for your glory, we pray that you would uh, wrench our hearts from its sin and draw us into your grace where we can live in righteousness. We trust your spirit to do your will this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Isaiah writes four songs in his long book. And all four songs are called the Songs of the Suffering Servant. And we're going to cover the fourth song of Isaiah. So today, my aim is to answer the question, why preach Isaiah 53? Of the four songs in Isaiah, Isaiah 52.13 through Isaiah 53.12 is the most well-known, the most repeated, probably the most preached. And it's also the last of the four songs. And it is also the most detailed description of the suffering of God's servant Jesus, in all of Scripture, there's no greater picture of the suffering of Christ than Isaiah 53. Pastor and theologian C.J. Mahaney said, There's no place in all of Scripture where we have such a detailed account of the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ. He says, All Scripture is bloodstained, but its death is particularly pronounced in this passage. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ was born, and yet it captures the work of Christ, the love of God, the beauty of his sacrifice, the power and glory of the gospel more intensely than any other text. 19th century German theologian Franz Dielich wrote of this chapter, It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross of Golgotha. Now, Golgotha is the place just outside of the Jerusalem walls where Jesus was killed on the cross, also called Calvary. And that event in human history stands out as the most significant event in all world history. It stands out because it is the center of our entire reality cross of Christ is the main thing like if there's anything you get today it's this the cross of Christ is the main thing the primary cause for celebration for believers it is the song that we will sing for eternity we will sing of suffering for eternity not ours his and the cross of Christ his death and resurrection is the primary tenet of our faith and without it Paul says that we are of all people most to be pitied and our faith is in vain. But with it, we find God's love, eternal hope, glorious grace, and endless joy in the substitution of Jesus on the cross. So, why focus on this text for the next few weeks? Because without this text, without the suffering of Christ, we are nothing. We have nothing, and we look forward to nothing. Without Jesus' death, we are hopeless. Meaning the cross is the main thing, and Mahaney, who I already quoted, also states about the cross of Christ, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Isaiah 53 shines a light brighter than the sun on our sinfulness. When we look at the way Christ is displayed in Isaiah 53, not so much today in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, but as we start walking through Isaiah 53, and you look at why this suffering servant is suffering so greatly, and all the scripture does is point to me. I'm the reason. I'm at fault. I'm the problem. When you start to see scripture that way, when you, st- when you look at Isaiah 53 and we see that reality, we can't help but see how Isaiah 53 shines that bright light on our sinfulness. And we dare not diminish our sin or act or think as if sin is not a big deal or believe that sin is no longer a concern of mine because I'm saved, I'm beloved, I'm a child of God, I'm a saint. Those are true. Who we are in Christ is not who we were without Christ. But we cannot convince ourselves to no longer take sin seriously. We must be aware of sin. Scripture commands us to do so in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. We must be aware and know that sin is so prevalent in us that if it were not for God's grace, we would immediately go straight to hell for eternity. And the reason we must be aware of sin and know our sin and contemplate our sin, and crumble before God over our sin, is not because sin should be our focus, but because without sin, we do not need Christ. I'm not telling you to focus on sin. I'm telling you to always be aware of your sin so that so always be aware of your sin so that there's a reason, and the reason's positive, it's good, you would find Christ to be your greatest sufficiency in everything. We must pay attention to our own sinfulness because God tells us that is who we are without Christ, and that draws our hearts and minds to look upon the cross and see this perfect servant dying the death we deserve to die, taking our place on the cross, bearing the weight of the father's wrath for us sin is examined in the believer's life not to glorify sin nor to cast a false sense of humility that you know that kind of like false humility we 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 do it sometimes i think all of us do to some extent like oh yeah i'm just such a wicked sinner like everyone knows that we're all sinners and so we all say oh i'm just a sinner and it's kind of this false sense of humility we put forward for people But do we really ever sit down and examine our hearts, examine the sin that is really there? Put ourselves on the chopping block and kind of say, all right, God, cut away. Surgery, open heart, who am I? Really, show me who I am. And he does in his word and he does it in prayer. And he does it through other believers. He does it through rebuke and reproof and correction and encouragement as well. Sin is examined in a believer's life not to glorify that sin. When God does open up our hearts and reveal to us our sin, the point isn't to go, oh, I'm such a terrible person. That is not the point of sin. The point of sin is that when we see how worthless and terrible and disgusted and putrid we are in our hearts, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. When we realize that that's what's in our hearts, When we examine ourselves, truly examine ourselves, we don't wallow in pity. The point is to make us recognize so that we are constantly aware that we have an absolute and endless need for our Savior, Jesus. As God reveals your sinfulness, all the ways in which you need to grow, all the ways in which you sin, all the ways in which your heart is not right, whether it's complaining or grumbling or, or arguing. Uh, when my wife and I argue with each other, I always think to myself, I'm the husband. It's my responsibility to fix this problem. And sometimes I just look at her and I'm like, are you going to apologize? <laughs> and she's like, when you do, right? And that's right. so, whatever is going on in our hearts, we need to lay that before God. Be like, God, what's, what's my sin? And when he shows us and we realize, man, I am desperately wicked. Like we think of, I think we sometimes think of sin as like an oops. Like I'm a believer, I know what's right, I know what righteousness is, I, I know what not to do and I know what to do. And, um, you know, sometimes sin just kind of happens you're like, oh, darn it, I said a bad word, oh, it just kind of came out of me. Or, oh, I didn't mean to have that attitude. It's not really who I am. I think the reality is that in a lot of times, and that happens, I understand that, sometimes sin just slips in. And those are moments when we have the opportunity to go, that's not who I am in Christ. That's who I am without Christ. And it leads us to Christ to see who Christ has made us to be. And we can turn that sin into righteousness through Christ. But I think oftentimes, we may not recognize this, But we are, as Jeremiah 79 says, desperately wicked. Like we pursue sin a lot more fervently than we like to believe. We put a lot more effort into sin. We sometimes think like, oh, righteousness is a lot of hard work. Sin's easy. Anyone can do sin. You just... That's why the world does sin, because it's easy. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be obedient. It's hard to take sin captive to obey Christ. It's hard to resist temptation, and it is hard. But we put a lot of effort into pursuing our wickedness. And that's wickedness that is not who we are, which means we're pursuing the flesh that has been conquered. And that's the beauty of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. That when we recognize that sin, That we would look at it and go, oh, that's who I am? And Jesus takes it and goes, no, that's not who you are. I am who you are. You're in me and I'm in you. New identity, new person, that sin has been conquered, buried in the grave, it cannot be resurrected, I have conquered it for eternity, you are resurrected, you are new, walk in righteousness, yeah, but it's hard, I know it's hard, but I gave you myself, I gave you my spirit, you can do it, well, you can't, I can do it in you, and I gave you me, so we can do this. I know the feeling because I love to wallow in my sin. I do. I love it. I have a habit of sinning and then being like, I'm such a bad person. And then I like give myself pity for being wicked or being sinful. And God's like, well, your response to your sin is also sin. So the point of your sin isn't to wallow in the misery of who you are without Christ the point of your sin is to rejoice in the goodness of God to make you new in Christ and then Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 so walk in it so why focus on Isaiah 53 because without it then who are we without the suffering of Christ who are we Without it, we're not the church, but instead we are just the aroma of death, a foul and putrid stench in the nostril of God. But thanks be to God that in his divine, sovereign, and perfect grace, he has given to us something immeasurably good. He has given to us his son, and in his son he has given to us himself. So, what is the church and what is the point if there is no Isaiah 53? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is that God's perfect servant, Jesus' son, was slain on a cross for our sins. If that is not what we are about, then we are all about nothing. You can turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13, if you're not there. Now, in Isaiah's song about the suffering servant, there are five stanzas. So I could do five sermons, a sermon on each stanza. I think what I'm going to do is four. I, I already have three of them done, so we're doing at least three. And I think uh, we'll do a fourth, and it will be the last two stanzas in one chunk. But the, the songs, the five stanzas, are broken up, each one into three verses, and it goes from the end of 52 all the way through chapter 53. And Isaiah is writing this prophetic song about the coming of a perfect servant who will suffer greatly. And this prophecy about the Messiah comes after Judah, the nation, was attacked by Assyria and held captive. The people are in exile. They're concerned about God's promises. They're worried. They feel like God made a promise that we could have the land. We don't have the land. God's not going to fulfill his promise. And and we're not really, we don't really believe. We're not really sure. We're not visualizing how God's promise to save us could actually come true. And in the midst of that suffering for Israel, comes this promise. They have this hope that we want, to, we want to return to our homeland and fulfill the covenant. And God's like, I have a better promise than this land. I have a better promise than this old covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant one day. And he shares the new covenant. It's a promise of eternal hope, not temporal hope of land here on earth, but of a kingdom that lasts forever with the king who has earned their spot and our spot in his presence. He promises to give to them himself. But before he can save us, he must suffer. Verse 13, Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, we know this servant is Jesus because in Acts 34 through 35. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading scripture. And the scripture he's reading is Isaiah 53. And Philip runs into him. And the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, About whom does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him, The good news about Jesus. So starting in Isaiah 53, he tells them the good news of Jesus. Isaiah 53, according to Luke in Acts 8, is about Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus is talking. And he says about himself, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And what's the scripture he quotes? And he he was numbered with the transgressors. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 53. And then Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. The servant, the suffering servant, is Christ. And Isaiah says that he shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. A prophetic truth that what his suffering will produce is not just death, but the death of death. As he conquers that which he suffers under through his resurrection. So we see the suffering servant as wise and exalted. And then therefore, verse 14, As many were astonished at you in his wisdom and exaltation. And we look at Jesus' life. He walks on earth and there are thousands upon thousands of people following him. Tens of thousands of people following Jesus everywhere. He is the most popular first century Palestinian man. No one's as popular as Jesus. So popular that people want to kill him. So popular that people want to follow him. He heals people. He casts out demons. He feeds them. He 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 makes the lame walk. He can do anything. He does incredible things, and everyone's got to follow him. And and, and we, we in our men's Bible study, we're in Acts, and as we read through Acts, we see this phrase repeated over and over. And many were astonished. Now they they are astonished at the disciples what the disciples are doing. And we look at Mark, people are constantly, the Gospel of Mark, people are constantly astonished at what Jesus does. Because he's an astonishing guy. He's so astonishing that 2,000 years later, we have church services all over the world on Sunday mornings to worship him. Pretty astonishing. People would say that Elvis Presley was astonishing. For his time, he was doing things that no one else was doing at least on TV, and he was super popular. Or, You know, and they try to relive the Elvis days by having Elvis impersonators go to places and people are like, Elvis! If they know it's not Elvis. They have this little bit of like worship in the heart for Elvis. He was astonishing. Is 2,000 years from now, are people going to be go- worshiping Elvis in Elvis concerts? I doubt it. No one is as astonishing as Christ and many were astonished at you, it says. Now there's this cool dichotomy, dichotomy in this astonishment that we have this one who suffers as a slain lamb and yet he is also victorious as a conquering lion and that is indeed worthy of astonishment. But before astonishment or exaltation take place, we are immediately taken in verse 14 from the heights of glory and astonishment that we find in verse 13 to the utter bottom of the earth, to the ugly and yet glorious reality of his humiliation in verse 14, which says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. We see the person of Christ and his work summarized in these two verses. His exaltation and his humiliation. From eternal, glorious God to mere man, marred and wrecked by men. From the greatest imaginable position in eternity, from eternity past, to the lowest of all positions, to the position of death on the cross, a humiliating Display of God himself being treated like a criminal, like a lowlife, like scum and like garbage. They hung criminals on crosses. They hung examples of bad people on crosses. And they took God himself, the perfect man, perfect, and put him on a cross and said, He's not perfect. There is no greater lie that's ever been told in all of history. We belong there. That's our cross and he took it for us. From exaltation, he bore our humiliation so that you would know just how much so that, listen to why, so that you would know just how much God loves you. God's glory is his greatest and most primary purpose in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your salvation serves one primary purpose, the glory of God. But there is not that glory if you are not loved. That is, the, that is what Isaiah 53 is really about. It's about the suffering servant, but the suffering servant shows us something that is really unimaginable to all of humanity and love that no human being could possibly display. Think about humanity. Someone wrongs you and what is our response? Oh, I hate that person. Oh, they drive me crazy. Oh, I'm going to get them back. We want revenge. We want to make things right. We want justice. We want to right the wrongs and there's a little bit of righteousness in there. Sometimes we've got that righteous indignation, want to make the wrongs right kind of thing and there's... Holiness in that to some extent. But the reality is, God says, vengeance is mine, not yours. Do not repay evil with evil, but do good to those who persecute you. Do good to those who are evil to you. Why, God? Because you're evil, and I was good to you. That's why. We offend God on a level that no human being has ever offended you. You have and I have offended God so much more, infinitely more. And I can say infinitely more because the punishment for your wickedness and offense to God is infinite hell. So your offense is infinitely worse. The way that we offend God, just in our sinful nature. From the moment we're conceived into our sinful nature, we are an offense to God with our wickedness. And we haven't even done anything good or bad yet. We are an offense to God that is so infinitely great that he will make us suffer for eternity. So there is no sin, no number of sins, no offenses that anyone has ever done to you that could ever compare to your offense to God, and yet, He loves you. That is why He says, love your enemies. Why, God? To show them what I'm like. That's why. The whole point of Isaiah 53 is is not just so that we'd see that the main thing is the, is the life, death, and resurrection, the suffering of Jesus Christ, but so that in the suffering of Jesus Christ, we would see really, really what captures the heart of humanity, God's love for people who don't deserve it. And not just his love, but the depths of his love and the greatness of his love and the parameters of his love, which there are none because it is infinitely great. If our offense to God is so infinitely great that it requires eternity in hell to pay for those sins, then that must mean the love that covers that sin is infinitely great. How awesome is that? That's why. That's why we're in Isaiah 53. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson writes this When we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. We almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that he loves us. The humiliation of Christ is God's way of revealing to us the depths of his love for those whom he has chosen. That his desire and will to love us requires a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice, but one that is worthy to pay for the sins of all his people. And because there is no man and no woman and no animal or no thing on earth that is worthy with perfection, He sends to us His very own Son. His own perfection was placed on the cross to bear the weight of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake. For our sake. I want to jump over those words so fast because those words, for our sake is so self-centered, and I love God's glory. And I know the Bible teaches over and over again that the whole reason for all reality, whether it's the tiniest, most unseen molecule in the most distant places to the greatness of de- Jesus' death on the cross, whether it's a, a huge reality or a, a minuscule reality, whole reality and all events in world history and all people and all things serve one primary purpose and that is to glorify God. And I want to skip over the for our sake verse because I I don't want to To be about us. And I know that for centuries, people have made the gospel about us. And it's not about us. It's about God's glory. But then you read the Bible and God's like, no, it is for my glory, but for your sake. For you. Because that glory that is so important means nothing if we're not saved. And we're not saved unless we're loved. And we're not loved unless God does this for our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is love. That is the greatest love. There's no better love. That's love. There's a reason I'm going to do this for the next three weeks after this week. Because this is the most important reality and all of realities. God loves you. It's so generic. It's so basic. It's so simple. It's not complex. It's not deep. It's not mind-boggling. But you know what it is? Complex, deep, and mind-boggling. It is insane that God would love us. And we blow over it like it's so basic and simple. Because it is. Even children can believe it. In fact, children are better at believing it than we are. And yet it's so profound. It changes our entire reality. It's it's a paradigm changer. It shifts your entire world out of order. This is love. To have his own son. Who deserves only who deserves only eternal glamour to temporarily bear the eternal condemnation of our sins. But only Jesus could bear it because only Jesus could conquer it. Only Jesus could endure it and only Jesus could take it and then only Jesus could defeat it. John Piper said, how can one man In a matter of hours, drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me. How can that be? That is not only power, that is love. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just imagine if you were to apply that to your own life. somebody does something so heinous, heinously terrible to you, murders your family, sets your house on fire, steals your car, drains your 401k, steals your identity, cusses you out, gives you a disease, and you lie in a hospital bed, Miserably miserable. Do you hate that person? Could there be a more justifiable hatred than something like that? So let me ask you, would you die for that person who did that to you? Like, I'm standing up here saying, would you? Like, I'm challenging you, like, I would. No, you I don't know if I could do that. That's insane. Does that person deserve jail? Yeah, does that person deserve to die? Absolutely. Does that person deserve what they deserve? Yes. Am I the judge of that? No. Because that offense doesn't even compare to what Christ did for you. Greater love has none than this. that someone laid on their life for their friends. Like, that's an extreme example, right? I make an extreme example to show you that we will hate people for far less than that extreme example. We will turn on each other for much less. We'll turn on each other for disagreements and arguments over petty issues and small things compared to the offenses that we have done to God. And yet he forgives and he loves and he dies for you. So take that reality and apply it to your own life. In what ways can you and can I love one another in the face of what feels like opposition and offense and heartache and pain and suffering that we do to one another? That's love. That's what the church needs more of, love. That's what I need to be more. That's what I need more of, love. That's what you need more of, love. That's what we need more of, love. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Now we need to understand that Israel reads this while they're under the law, the Old Testament law. They're in the Old Covenant and they live under the priesthood in that Old Covenant. So this language of sprinkling refers them to think of this suffering servant as a priest because it casts this image of atonement as priests would sprinkle blood on the altar of atonement, so also will this suffering servant sprinkle his blood over the nations. And when you read the book of Hebrews, you see that Jesus is now cast as the new, the great high priest, the one who replaces the former priesthood and fulfills the priesthood forever. So when God says to Israel that David's throne, David's priesthood, David's throne and the Levitical priesthood will last forever, what he's saying is the, the throne for Israel will be seated in Christ and the priesthood for Israel will be seated in Christ and the Israel, God's people, will be the church. The church doesn't replace Israel, the church fulfills God's covenants through Christ For Israel, the atonement was only for them. So they've got this atonement idea in their mind when they hear the word sprinkle the nations. He's going to atone for the nations. For the Jews, this was only for them, but the servant makes this sacrifice applicable to all people, not just Jews, but to Gentiles, to all peoples, tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. All who believe will join him in glory as he silences Kings. And as a king does, so all his people do. The people follow their king. That's the meaning here. When he refers to kings, he's talking about nations. He's talking about the entire world will be silenced at Christ. So, this language of silenced kings means means that all the people and all the nations will, will, will one day see Christ for who he truly is. And Paul confirms this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, when he tells us that after the humiliation of Jesus, he will be exalted and recognized by every living soul from all time throughout all history. Every person who's ever lived, believer, unbeliever, heaven, hell, everywhere, anywhere, all people will recognize Christ for who he is. All nations all representations will see him. And Paul writes, Therefore God has, ex- has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God will get his glory. And it will be through his son because of what his son suffered that leads to his glorious exaltation. So though Isaiah starts this song with his exaltation and then leads us down this path of his humiliation, there is this hope that remains in Isaiah. And we'll see it as we travel throughout Isaiah 53. There's this hope that remains. The humiliated, suffering servant will finally be exalted once again. And this time, with those whom he has rescued. So, the kings and their people, Isaiah says in verse 15, will see and they will understand, and yet they will be silent. They will bow their knee before the suffering servant. They'll bow their knee before, as Revelation chapter 4 and 5 describes it, an image of an lamb that was slain. Before him they'll bow. But they'll be silent. What is there to say? There's nothing to say. What could one possibly stay, say about the bloodstained lamb whose blood sprinkles the nation and brings God-hating opponents to their knees to worship him in humility by the grace of the almighty creator? What is there to say? Why was Jesus silent before Pilate? Because there's nothing to say. No words could encapsulate the fullness of the glory of God that, is, that was required on that cross to bring many sons to glory. Who am I and what are my people? Cries David in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. Who am I and what are my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So it is... It is with the nations and so it is with the kings and with us that there are no words that we can properly put into human understanding that help us describe the the lengths and the depths and the width and the breadth of God's love for us. It really is unimaginable and therefore indescribable. Whatever words we can find are His words. That's why we preach the word. Because we don't have words and God's like, use these words and only these words because these are the words that I want said about my indescribable love for you about my indescribable and unimaginable son and what he did for you and the lengths to which I went to rescue you. You don't have words because you don't have the imagination because your finite minds cannot conceive of the infinite reality and the eternal love of God that he has for you. That just doesn't make sense to us. And so we're stuck, if I could use that word, stuck with the Bible. What a great reality that we're stuck with God's words instead because we cannot come up with our own. It's indescribable. And so we preach the word. No words can capture it. And whatever words we do find, who are we to offer them? Because they're his, right? And we are left speechlessly in awe Of Christ, when we look at what He does on the cross for us, no words can capture the purity of the perfect Son, let alone do words exist that can capture the infinite mercy of God to love us enough to put His own perfect Son on a cross. So, what can we say? Nothing. And so we're left silent as we see the blood of Christ run down the cross. Blood that paid for our souls. Blood that purchased our lives. Blood that was poured out as a substitution for us. That should be our blood. That should be us on the cross. That should be our death. But instead, the God of love shows us grace so that we taste for eternity the infinite nature of his love. Sometimes I hear people say they're scared of eternity. I'm like, I just don't get it. I I understand the idea of never ending and we only can really think about things that end. But man, can you imagine? There's a reason that Psalm 1611 says that in his presence there is endless joy and pleasures forevermore. We really can't imagine how awesome it's gonna be. And because of how awesome it is and how awesome he is, because he's the one who makes it awesome. Psalm 73, 25, What have I on earth and whom have I in heaven? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Why would we go to heaven if God's not there? The whole reason we want to go there is to be with him. He's the awesome. Heaven's not awesome. God is awesome. The joy of eternity is the presence of God forever. Without sin and perfect righteousness, that is awesome. And we're going to experience love with a perfect mind. You've never experienced perfect love. I mean, you've never conceived of, out of your own sinful mind, perfect love. You can try to think about what a perfect love is, but you don't have a perfected mind. And you don't have a perfected heart. You have the heart of Christ in you, so you can experience that perfect love. But you cannot think of... Or experience perfect love the way it's meant to be experienced, which is why we endure this life so we can get there and experience that. Because right now our sinful nature clouds the perfection of His love. And so I think about eternity and I'm like, it's going to be awesome. If I have any fear about eternity, it's conquered by the reality that He promises me it's going to be great. And that requires faith and trust and belief that He says it's going to be great, it's going to be great. And if I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if I can trust him, he proved his love for us on the cross. How can you not trust him? So, why preach Isaiah 53 if there's nothing that we can really say in light of his glorious victory? Because if that is true, if that is true, then what else is there to say? Because if I cannot say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2:2 for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, then I should shut my mouth and quit my ministry and die a miserable and worthless death to spend eternity in the abyss of hell and separation from God. That's what I should do. If I can't say what Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that doesn't mean we can't teach other biblical truths. The point is that that is the biblical truth. I cannot preach if I cannot preach Christ and his crucifixion. There is no preaching if it is not Christ and him crucified. This is all and that is it. This is everything. All doctrines, all teachings, all scripture, all biblical truths fall flat with no steam, no energy, no power if the substitutionary atonement of Christ is not the core of what God's people are all about. God's wrath poured out on his son so that he could pour out on us his love. Why? We don't deserve it. We deserve death. We are worthless without this truth. We are not the church without this truth, and we are not the church if we do not preach and teach and believe and live this truth. God loves you and he proved it. What kind of people ought we be then? People of love. So why Isaiah 53? Because this is the heart of God toward his people. This is the true heart of God. When you look at scripture, you see the way that God behaves. He's always reluctant and resistant to judgment and wrath. He's patient. He patiently endures evil. He's patient and patient and patient and patient. And Moses intercedes and someone else intercedes and Joshua intercedes and then Jesus intercedes and God is patient and patient and long-suffering and enduring our sin. And the moment we go, God help, he's like, I'd love to. When, where, how, now, right? Yeah, Yeah, I'll love you. Mercy, grace in an instant. That's the true heart of God. That's what makes this truth so powerfully amazing. This is the truest nature of who God is. God does not want to pour his wrath out on you. And the reason he doesn't want to is because he's a God who wants to show love, grace, and mercy more than anything because that exalts his glory so much more. And in order to in order to show you how awesome his love, grace, and mercy is, he's like, and I and I, I he's like, I don't want to pour my wrath out on you. And because I don't want to, because I love you so much, because I don't want to do that to you, I'm gonna do it to my son. What? None of us think that way. That to save Grace Church, I'm gonna sacrifice one of my children. What? We don't think that way. God is so sacrificially wonderful. This is God's true heart toward his people, a God rich in mercy and from whom rivers of flowing grace stream into our souls and revive us like dry bones in Ezekiel 37. This truth, this cross, this Christ is our God and our master and our savior, he is our substitution. He bore for us that which we cannot bear, and for us to bear it requires that we remain in an endless state of perpetual dying under his vengeance against our hatred toward him and our offenses to his holiness. That's what it would take, and yet his grace is greater than the eternal weight of our sin. Because his grace and mercy are infinite and without end. And grace and mercy are God's truest expressions of his real heart. He takes great pleasure. Hear me out. He takes great pleasure and joy in showing us love. Even when it costs him, it brings him great pleasure. But even when it does cost him, there's a plan a plan that means he does not lose and that which it costs him will return to him tenfold or a hundredfold or in Christ, infinite fold. In us, infinite fold. In the church, infinite fold. Through the resurrection of his son, which we will see unfold over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Lord, you are too good to us. We don't deserve you. We love you because you first loved us. Pray that we would believe and understand and trust and really fall into your love in such a way that we are enamored by your presence. Help us to love one another as you loved us. Thank you for your suffering servant. In Jesus' name, amen.